Welcome to Customer Marketing Catch-Up, the podcast from the Customer Marketing Alliance. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dina Zenick and Liz Richardson from the Captivate Collective about how to incorporate the voice of the customer into your customer and market research. So Dina and Liz, a warm welcome to the podcast. How are you both doing today? Very good, Amy. Nice to um, meet you. Yeah, lovely, Amy. Thank you for getting up so early to, to, to speak to us on the podcast. And I often ask my guests this question because I think it's really interesting to see kind of the the huge variety of backgrounds that customer marketers and people who work in advocacy come from. So I'd just like to start by asking you both how you kind of got to where you are today. Like what was the journey that you took to, to get there? That's a super fun question. And I, I like when people ask it because Zina and I have been in the field for long enough that our origins are not just stepping into customer marketing or advocacy. They're really uh, more of a roundabout way. Dina's is even more roundabout. So I'll, I'll save her for last because uh, she's a little more exciting there. But um, for me, actually, this is so funny too, Amy. Actually, my degrees are in, in music. So I don't know what the tie-ins oh, wow. <laughs> tie there are. Um, I think there really are some tie-ins actually. Um, uh, music is a lot about connecting to people. It's It's a lot about feelings and emotion, but also, um, it, it, it is a, uh, you put yourself out there a lot as well. Um, but really I, I stepped into technology, um, uh, in a roundabout way. I had a sister who was working at a tech startup. I joined there. Um, and my first toe dipping into marketing at all was this thing called Google ads that nobody, um, it was still very new, actually. And if this startup was like, here, here's a couple million dollars, just go manage our Google ads account. And I had never done it before. And um, so I, I stepped my toe into there and that I view as like, uh, you know, one voice to many, many. And then I moved from there and got really interested in this this field of social um, for B2B. You know, everyone was saying it's not really a B2B playground. Um but I really thought we needed a presence there. So you get a little bit of a smaller following there in social. And then we wanted to launch a community. And of course, I was really interested in that because that was very focused on our customer base. And then from community, I heard this thing called advocacy and really stepped into it because I had a, a problem I was trying to solve, which is the, the massive issue of why is it so difficult to organize customers? Why are we using the same customers over and over again? Um, it, this seems disparate, unorganized, et cetera. And then really stumbled into this field of advocacy, which feels like I went from one to messaging for a thousand to more like one-to-one -one relationships with customers. And I just fell in love with that practice as a whole. And the rest is kind of history, right? Going from, you know, um, working for uh, a leader in the platform space, category creation space, um, and really starting to uh, invest in the best practice area of this uh, field. And then, of course, now working at Captivate Collective with Dina, um, focused 100% on what is advocacy, what is the strategy behind it, the methodology, and where is it going? Awesome. Thanks so much, Liz. How about you, Dina? You've kind of touched on it a little bit, Liz, but yeah, let's get some more, get some more details. Well, I think I, you know, I, I have to make this exciting now because Liz set it up to be. Yeah, she set the bar high. <laughs> an exciting story. Um, my first um, career and my, my first degree um, was in journalism in the late nineties. Um, and um, 
by the time I finished, from the time I started my degree in the late 90s and finished my degree in the early 2000s, the media landscape had really changed. Um, the internet was really a thing and people were now publishing blogs um, at that time and um, news media was changing. And um, so the, the version of myself that I saw as a journalist um, started to change as well. And um, I still really was passionate about pursuing that as a career choice, even with all of that change. Um, so I decided that um, I would focus really heavily in one area and become a, a specialist journalist rather than a generalist. Um, so I went to graduate school um, to do a research degree so that I could get a really deep expertise in a certain um, topic. And um, that re went really well for the first few years. And um, I was fully funded by the government and, and I was having a great time doing that. Um, but when my funding ran out, I needed to get a job. Um, so the kind of lowest hanging opportunity that I could find that would <clears throat> pay more than freelance um, journalism was paying at the time um, was to work as a copywriter in a technology firm. Um, so took that copywriting job, but then very quickly um, in that particular scenario realized that copywriting was not creative writing. Um, it was really a lot of copying and pasting from messaging documents and, and that didn't really turn me on at all. Um, so instead of leaving the business, um, the CEO of the business um, at Smart Technologies, a woman named Nancy Knowlton, um, she handed me a cardboard box that literally had some file folders in it um, with information about customers and schools um, that were doing interesting things with smart products. And she asked me to pursue um, that information in that box as a program, uh, which became the Smart Showcase Schools program. And then from there, went on to manage um, pretty much the full portfolio of customer advocacy offerings as they developed over the years from between 2005 to 2015, um, at which time um, I left um, that position. I kind of reached my potential there. And uh, along with Liz, a month after Liz joined the first market um, advocacy software provider, um, a company that uh, was led by Mark Organ, who's quite well known in the tech space um, and who I had developed a relationship um, with through meeting him at conferences and whatnot and um, was there for uh, a few years and headed up their center of excellence focused on um, methods and best practices um, as well as consulting and um, then left. And now here I am at Captivate Collective with Liz. Awesome. So Liz did set that bar high, but I think I think you got right over it. <laughs> awesome. So that's really interesting, folks. Um, so as I said a bit earlier, we're here to dig a bit deeper into voice of the customer work and how that connects specifically to, to advocacy. So I wondered if we could just sort of start with, with defining what is meant by voice of the customer and particularly what that looks like in, in relation to advocacy. Yeah, I can start us off on that. So, you know, I, I'm looking at the definition of voice of customer, which Qualtrics defines as um, uh, your your customers' feedback about their experiences with and expectations for your products or services. Um, and I think we look at it slightly different in the field of customer advocacy, which is we're really looking for the voice of the customer when it comes to feedback on their experience and their sentiment around your organization and how that impacts their um, 
their willingness to collaborate with you on things that extend beyond just buying your products or your services. So we really love or believe strongly in infusing the voice of the customer into building customer advocacy strategies. And that's that's where we um, we sit when we talk about voice of the customer, that's our field. And so that's how we are thinking about voice of the customer when it comes to building customer advocacy strategies. Uh, we're passionate about this because we've seen so many organizations launch customer programs with a grand vision of, okay, this is what collaborating with customers can bring to our organization. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, ideas around how customers can accelerate sales and marketing, um, maybe even improve their products, et cetera. Um, but surprisingly, a lot of people jump into this ideation without actually infusing voice of customer into that ideation process. It's almost like they see it as a bit of a standalone initiative and we don't approach it necessarily with the same rigor. Now, customer advocacy is still a maturing practice. And so we are learning as we go. So where we might infuse customer voice much more uh, consistently into let's say product ideation. I think people in our field are still learning the importance and the rigor around bringing customer voice into the field of customer advocacy. And maybe we think it's a given because these programs are all about customers, right? We're going to be talking to customers. We're going to be interacting with customers. Isn't that getting their voice? Um, but we really encourage people to take a step back when they are approaching this practice and think about how they're infusing that customer voice into the ideation and the development of customer programs themselves. Dina, would you agree with that? I would totally agree, Liz. And I just had kind of this mind flash from when Liz and I were working as consultants, um, customer advocacy consultants back in 2015. And whenever we would start an engagement, like we would want to know, you know, who's, who's your audience? Who do you work with? And, um, it was always, oh, we have persona documents. We'll we'll get those over to you. And we would be reading through persona documents going, okay, like this is, you know, um, Henry, the head guy and um, Jamie, <laughs> the person on the persona docs. And that didn't even scratch the surface of what you really need to know about your customers when you're developing an advocacy program or an advocacy strategy. It goes so far beyond those funny monikers in um, in those persona docs. It goes so far beyond the role and the title, um, uh, and you know that that type of information that you get in persona documents. So the research is just it's critical to scratch below the surface of how we typically think of the customer um, in the corporate world and really start to reframe them as not just a customer but as a real person. And you, you both kind of started to touch on it already, but kind of in your experience, what, what have you seen the impact be of when, when voice of the customer work is done properly? What, what have you seen that impact <laughs> to have other than, you know, it's very two-dimensional <laughs> personas, hopefully not that. <laughs> there, there's a lot of assumptions really about who customers are by organizations. And I get it. Like, you know, scale is a real need. Scale is a thing. And so we use levers to make, 
um, it easier to make decisions. And so that's why we have things like personas, which by the way, we do not knock persona documentation. Hopefully anyone listening, we think that's very useful and helpful as well. It is a great starting place. Um, but when, when you don't dig a little bit deeper, what we have found is that organizations often come to the table with a lot of assumptions about will, what will or will not resonate or work with their customer base. So, um, we'll give you an example. Um, uh, this is just an example, guys, nobody shoot me who's listening to this podcast. It's one example. It could go either way, but, uh, you might come to the plate and say, uh, no, our customers are absolutely not incentivized, motivated in any way, shape, or form by gifts. We're, we're just going to scrub that out. We know that for sure. Um, and and while we think gifts should be used very judiciously, um, they also can be, I mean, very tempting and, and useful in when used correctly. Uh, so what we encourage those organizations to do is, you know, before you make big decisions that you're basing your whole entire uh, program strategy on, why don't we just go ask them? Like, why don't we just go ask your target audience if that's, in, you know, if that's enticing to them or not enticing to them? We don't have to sit here and guess. Um, we can take a pause in what we are doing and we can actually go ask the experts what should be involved in this program. So all the way, everything, Amy, from like branding and tone and um, yes, what is, you know, what are the incentives involved? Where are the gaps that they are seeing that maybe your program could play into and step in and fill that gap? Um, we often see people skipping that step because they are so confident or they just have this feeling that they really understand their customers already, which in hey, they are the experts. And in some cases they are, by the way, your CSM team is an awesome resource. They actually do know your customers individually very, very well. Um, so that's another group you can talk, tap into. But there's really no substitute for going to the source and infusing that voice of customer, just like you would with your product, infusing that into your customer advocacy program strategy. Uh, that I know it just seems so self-evident, but there was a long period of time. I know Dina can vouch with me on this. There's a long period of time where most programs were not being launched within and in collaboration with that target audience. Interesting and kind of scary a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Um, going into sort of more of the nuts and bolts a little bit, what, what do you need to get started doing like voice of the customer work? What would kind of, you know, be your best practice in terms of, you know, this is what you kind of need to do to get started. Here's the groundwork. How, how can people, you know, get going? When we're working with our clients, our starting point is always a little workshop to um, understand who it is that we need to reach to get infuse that right voice into the program uh, or advocacy strategy ideation process. Um, so that's that's the start, understanding who it is that you need to reach and narrowing that focus down um, based on whatever the, the goals or objectives are of the, the program or the strategy that you're developing so that you're bringing the right voice um, into the mix. And then from there, um, it is starting to work through what do we want to learn from them? What can we learn from them? How much is too much? Um, we're going through a process right now where we had to whittle 
um, a survey down um, from many, many questions uh, because um, we started to get into, um, you know, and this, this definitely happens. Um, well, hey, if we're deploying a survey, let's tack some other questions on about the product. Um, if we're going to reach out to our customers, let's ask some other questions that are not really in the bullseye for what we're trying to do here with customer advocacy, but just because we can. Um, so, you know, it's, it's keeping that, um, keeping the question set in scope, keeping it narrow enough uh, and focused enough that you're going to get um, good finish rates uh, on that survey. That's, that's the starting point um, for us. Um, we also um, interview uh, customers as well. So figuring out from the broad perspective, who is the, the right target audience to reach out to for that survey. Um, but in uh, from the interview perspective, who are the absolute bullseye customers um, that you can talk to and have an open, honest and direct conversation with? There's no point in having a conversation with someone who's just going to kind of mirror um, what they think it is um, that, you, that you want them to say, but really finding those right customers uh, to have those open conversations so that you can glean um, uh, that deeper level of um, information that you're not going to get on the survey. I think that's a really important point. And I just want to tack on to Dina's about that idea of focus of the survey um, or the questions that you're asking so that you do walk away with the input that you need. But I also think there is focus on the actual target audience. And, and I do think people slip up here because it's very, it's very difficult, right? You, you Maybe you have a kind of broad idea of what you would like in an advocacy program. Um, and what happens is you have your ideas of this is why we're launching this program, but you know what? It would also be nice if we could get um, this, 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 and this on top of that. All right. So now you've broadened your audience a bit because why not like low hanging fruit? Why not go ahead and, and throw some other people into the program if we can do that well, but it's very important that you have a strategy. Um, you have a North star, I'll call it your North star. What is the main reason you're launching this specific program? And of course, we're seeing more and more organizations have a portfolio of programs uh, so that they can be targeted this way. But what is your North Star purpose for launching this program? Okay, who is the audience that will actually uh, impact the way you measure success for this program? That is the audience that you really need to focus and hone in on. You, you can go broader and get some feedback but you need to be able to pull out the responses and the data based on those people who are your target audience, because you can get really excited about, oh, see, all these people want to do this, or all these people really love the idea of this channel or this engagement type. But if that's not your core target audience, who can actually uh, actually interact with you in such a way you can measure the success of that program, then it's nice to have, but at the end of the day, those uh, that response, that data set might just muddy the water as far as the success of your program long-term. Awesome. And I'd just like to kind of pick up on something that both of you have, have sort of mentioned, like, you know, a, a potential stumbling block be might be for, for a company, you know, that they're not talking to the right customers or it's like an echo chamber and they're kind of just choosing the ones that, you know, that they want to hear from. 
And this might sound like quite a negative question, but I think we can get a lot of juice out of it. Where do you think advocacy programs often really fall short? Obviously, that being being one of them. But but what are the other potential kind of pitfalls that people often fall into? And I think Dina would agree with me on this one because we bring it up a lot, which is there's busyness associated with your advocacy program. Like you can generate a lot of busyness. Um, you can ask customers to engage and do a lot of different things things. You can um, put a lot of different interaction types and content in there. But I guess going back to actually my last point was when it comes to the end of the day and how you're going to measure success in that program and that being tied to how leadership is measuring success at this day and point in time for the organization, what are the actual metrics that truly have an impact on your organization? There's a lot of busyness you can create with customers, but that can just be creating extra noise, which at the end of the day might distract them from exactly what the purpose, um, your main purpose or prerogative is for that program. So that's one of the pitfalls that we see is just, I'm going to report on everything and anything because like, I just want to make this program look really fantastic. And there is a lot of good to some of those small things for sure. We're, we're definitely not knocking that. But at the end of the day, do you know for sure what success is in relationship to your organization? Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. I have another, but I'll let Dina go next. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up, um, Amy, uh, because that is. Um, uh, that's uh, a, a comment like that echo chamber comment. What's the, you know, what's the goodness in speaking to, to people who are just going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, I've been, um, you know, grappling with that sentiment or that comment um, since I started in customer advocacy. So going all the way back to 2005 and 2006, people inside the business, the pr product people primarily at that time um, would say, well, you know, those, those customers, they're just like, they're so happy with us. They're just going to say anything to make us happy. And um, I think that that really um, waters down the, the impact and agency of, of your customers. There are going to be people for sure that um, have a hard time giving open, honest and direct feedback. But if you are a skilled conversationalist, if you're a skilled interviewer, you know how to peel back the layers of what people are saying. You know how to um, get to um, a different level of conversation. And even in survey design, you can design surveys to just elicit um, really good uh, news um, from a happy audience. Or you can design surveys that are actually going to, again, um, pick, a, a, get down a few layers uh, deeper. Um, so I know it is a sentiment. I was just reading something on uh, LinkedIn about this, this whole um, uh, controversy uh, this week about um, reviews and incentivizing reviews. And why would you only, why would you only ask people who have given you NPS seven and higher for a review? And, you know, at the end of the day in that scenario, I think having uh, uh, an echo chamber, whatever you want to call it. That's kind of what we're tasked with doing, right? We're not tasked with surfacing up um, negative uh, comments or reviews, but in any case, I think it, it comes down to um, the, the skill of the practitioner um, to be able to get to a deeper level of conversation and understanding from the clients. 
And that's not specific to advocacy. Um, that's going to be across any aspect of the business where you're infusing the voice of the customer. Yeah, really good point. And you mentioned the the NPS, the, the articles floating around LinkedIn. I've seen quite a few of those uh, this week. Right. So yeah, right. very, very kind of pertinent. Um, sorry, Liz, you wanted to add something else. Um, oh, yeah, yeah just, uh, and this is a little more forward thinking because I, I I won't even say I've done it well necessarily or that we've seen a lot of programs do it well. But um, when we think of voice of the customer and what we're trying to elicit from them in that early stages of ideating your advocacy program, we, we do also, of course, want to tap into what's the value of this program for the advocate themselves or the customer themselves. Um, I think people have generally accepted that. It did take a hot second, but I think generally people have accepted, oh yeah, yeah, there's definitely gotta be um, equal value in this for the customer. But we do tend to focus all of the uh, measurements of success on what does the organization get out of this program. Um, so while we do often try to infuse the customer voice in setting uh, the value proposition for the program, uh, because we understand, oh, this is kind of what our customers would like more of from us, or yes, we want to help them build their brand, whatever that might be. We we do that step right now, I'd say in this practice, where we're failing to go from there is measuring the success of that with our customers. You know, do did they get the value? that they believed this program would provide to them? Was their voice infused properly in setting the value proposition? Did we follow through with that? Did they think this is a successful program? So when it comes to their judgment on, uh, did the North Star get reached from their point of view, uh, that's just not something people typically uh, measure on. Uh, I think the sentiment is basically like, well, if people are still engaging, if people aren't here, it must be worth it to their time, which which is a fair uh, broad case. But I think as our practice matures, we're going to want to look at uh, measurements, not just of success for the organization, but if we're truly customer focused and customer centric, measurements of success for the customer themselves. There's an older article going around that got attention for a, a hot second and it was customer performance indicators. Um, and I love that idea uh, infused into this idea of advocacy practice. And I think we'll see um, that gap being filled as we move forward in the future. Really interesting that you mentioned that because my, my next kind of question was going to be, obviously, customer marketing and more broadly, customer advocacy is kind of taking root, you know, in a lot of companies. It's still in its quite sort of early stages. And I was going to ask you both kind of what your vision would be for advocacy. I don't know, let's say over the next five years, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> If you wanted to make some predictions, how do you, how do you think things are going to go? Well, we 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 see customer advocacy becoming more and more decentralized, um, and um, we call it ungated. Um, so it really infusing customer advocacy at, at many points in the customer journey, um, all the way from deal close in some cases before the deal closes, um, and um, really looking at portfolios of programs rather than we we're we're Acme Corporation and yes we do customer advocacy we have the Acme Corporation Champions program we there is you know then it, it has already started right there is a move um, towards a more holistic um, version uh, of customer advocacy which is meeting customers where they're at in their journey 
um, nurturing those relationships, learning about customers uh, in a meaningful way as they move through their journey with your business, um, and then using that data to nurture that relationship and move that customer along to the point of activation. Um, and activation is where at the point where we can, you know, start to measure the impacts of advocacy on the business. I think we've seen a lot of art around the practice of customer advocacy. That's really kind of where it's sat. The creative types are typically the people who sit in the role today. Um, extroverts uh, typically do well in, in these. Um, but I think we are seeing a real push toward the science angle of it as well. Tools and data are becoming extremely important to the conversation as people and organizations become uh, much more anxious to measure the results of advocacy as the practice matures. And so I think that science bit, the ability of an advocacy program manager to think through the flow of data between the different departments to get a more holistic view of the customer or the customer advocate is becoming a, a great desire of the community so that we aren't looking at customer advocates in their journey over here. That's that's kind of where we're at because that's where our, the tools and functionality allow us. Uh, we have that view of who they are as a customer advocate. It is rarely tied to what our view of their customer journey is. These things are pretty much living separately because they live in separate tools. They live in separate departments. There's a different view of who these people are. And there's a real push now or desire at least to consolidate this into what the one customer, you know, the customer advocate and the, the customer who renews year after year. What's the overlap there? We talk about the combined value of an advocate. So, you know, you might have someone who does a million reviews for you and is willing to do every speaking opportunity, but you know, they're still spending like 10K a year with you. <laughs> There's not a huge monetary investment there. On the other hand, um, you may have someone who's not allowed because they're from an organization uh, that doesn't allow it. They're, they're, they're not very publicly uh, referenceable at all. And yet they're increasing their spend with you year after year. So who's the greater advocate? I think this becomes some of the questions that we like to think about and tackle is, you know, what does advocacy really mean? Does it just mean I publicly go speak about your organization? Or is there a deeper form of, you know, loyalty that we view as advocacy? And we like to talk about some of the overlap between um, B2B advocacy and B2C loyalty and looking at it more holistically. Loyalty really looks at spend uh, over time and increasing that spend over time. Um, B2B tends to look at relationship and public references, but I think, you know, we, we are going to see an overlap in bringing those pictures together. And I think what's interesting right now is you're seeing programs start to, to um, move up or down. And what I mean by that is you're starting to see the technology and the science really reach for that large scale engagement uh, through technology, across the journey, across platforms, et cetera. Um, so a one-to-many-many many in order to infuse advocacy along the customer journey. And then you're also seeing more and more of these very targeted, uh, relevant white glove programs because people are realizing, ah, to really build the relationships we need, we still have to have these one-on-one -on -one, um, opportunities and, and experiences that make our customers feel 
and, and relate to us as an organization. And so I think we're starting to see programs scale downward and upward at the same time, which is a very interesting thing to see. Super valuable insights from you both there. And I think what is particularly relevant as you know, more and more people who work in the advocacy space say, okay, well, we need to prove the value of what, what we're doing, hence, you know, the science, so to speak, of, of what you just said. Um, this has been an amazing conversation with you both. We'd better start to wrap things up there. Um, but I just wanted to ask, where can people find out more about you guys and the, and the really valuable work that you're doing? What's, what's the best way to get in touch? Well, the, the best way to get in touch with us and 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 stay on top of all of the stuff that we do, I will say we are we are not your mama's customer advocacy agency. We are always up to something. Um, that is part of the reason why um, Liz and I started Captivate Collective was to really have that freedom uh, to uh, approach um, uh, our business and and this practice in the ways that we want to. Um, so if you want to keep up or try to keep up with all <laughs> of the uh, all of the events and uh, opportunities that we have going on, the best place is to find Captivate Collective on LinkedIn um, or go to the CaptivateCollective.com and subscribe to our monthly newsletter, which provides a really good roundup of everything that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that is it. Dina got it. The, it's just important the captivatecollective.com that that might throw people off but that is the uh the website don't forget the the thanks so much both for joining me and yeah go check them out thanks so much thanks amy this has been a great conversation thank you so much thanks for having us amy it's lovely to meet you thanks you too bye, bye.